This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. And we're live on the phone with Saul Simbler. Saul? Good, uh, good evening, Grant. How are you? Good evening. Thanks for joining us from D.C. tonight. It's always a pleasure. So... For for those in our audience who haven't heard of Saul, Saul Simbler uh, runs a website called Doing Business Legally in Cuba dot com, and it's actually legally oh, doing business in Cuba dot com. Legally doing business in Cuba dot com. I'll have to tweet that out. Legally doing business in Cuba dot com, and uh, he's here to tell us about the papal visit because the, the the Pope visited both Cuba and now he's coming up to the United States, and. Um, it's kind of a big deal, but it hasn't been reported as much as it would have been, say, the last time the Pope visited in 1998. So so tell us a little bit about what's going on with this visit. Well, the Pope's visit to the United States and uh, before Cuba is kind of bookends on uh, diplomacy as well as a religious uh, visit. Clearly, the uh, Pope went down there, as prior Popes have done, to support the Cuban people. Um, in doing that, the Pope took the opportunity to basically give uh, the folks in Cuba, as well as the government in Cuba, his position on what he thinks the world expects of Cuba. And that's what he's done. Now, as a precursor to that, he was, of course, involved in the giant effort to get the United States and Cuba to talk and to lighten up to the point where now some of the restrictions and some of the attitudes that each country had against each other are at least chipping away little by little. Well, that's what um, I was getting at. He was the facilitator for the historic warming of relations that happened in December when President Obama announced that the United States and Cuba would seek normal relations. Has he revealed a little bit more about his role as an intermediary? He really hasn't. Um, at that level, remember, he's not only a pope, he's a diplomat, um, and he has to be diplomatic about it in, in, in the most generic sense of the word. The pope um, cannot force anybody to do or not do anything. His status and this particular pope's status worldwide is not only a leader but a populist, opens up the opportunity to let folks um, use his efforts as kind of a treadmill to jump on to do things. In this case, the United States and Cuba um, were able to use that kind of as a gadget, so to speak, um, to get back to the table and to do that in a meaningful way and in a respectful way. And because of that, you've seen um, kind of at warp speed uh, changes being done. Um, I'm here in Washington more than anything because tomorrow uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is the Department of Treasury uh, agency which administers embargo and sanction country commerce is having their annual conference and in anticipation of that and i believe directly because the pope wasn't cuban coming to the united states president obama uh, negotiated some um, uh, not negotiated he implemented um, further changes uh, to doing business in cuba and opec and the department of commerce have issued new regulations now we've seen snippets of it in the news i've got the actual uh, you know, uh, federal register, uh, which, you know, anybody can get. And, and they're quite detailed, and the changes 
some instances are, are rather profound. So, okay, you're talking about OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. They're, they're pretty much in charge of enforcing embargoes uh, when they do exist, trade embargoes. Well, it's not so much that they enforce it, and it's also the Department of Commerce. They regulate commerce with countries that are sanctioned, okay, like Sudan and Iran, or embargoed like Cuba. Cuba, if you'll remember, is no longer... Uh, considered a uh, state sponsor of terrorism, so they've been taken off that list. That being said, because of the Helms-Burton bill, which is virtually the embargo, um, there is not an ability to do business other than through OFAC, uh, at least initially. Now with certain changes, even a lot of that has now gone away. Ultimately, until the embargo goes away, or as in Cuba they call it the blockade, um, then we'll have full restoration of, of commercial uh, commerce between both countries. But Friday, um, major steps were taken by the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, we can go over those now or some other time. Oh, we'll, we'll go over those right after the break. We're going to take a really short break. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. That's www.onlyinmiami.co. We're back with Saul Simbler. Saul, thanks for joining us tonight. Grant, it's always a pleasure. So, so let's talk about these big changes that are coming on Friday. What will that change from today? until, you know, it's implemented. What's new? Well, they, actually, they were implemented last Friday. Okay. They were, uh, they were published in the Federal Register. Um, you can Google it, you can get it. But there were some major things there. I mean, it dealt with uh, issues including um, travel by vessel or aircraft other than chartered uh, vessels. Um, talked about um, the, the ability to directly do business in certain instances with Cuban entities. Um, although it, generally there's still a prohibition against doing it with the Cuban uh, government, uh, financial um, transactions and how those are done uh, were, were softened up. Uh, physical presence of Americans who want to do business in Cuba, meaning an office or retail warehouse, in certain instances, in limited instances, are now permitted. Uh, the um, ability to now send money to Cubans in Cuba. Is now limitless. It's not two thousand dollars. 
uh, every three months. Now it's, it's all the way. Well, here's uh, a question. Now- here's an interesting question. Um, most people don't know this, but Ecuador dollarized their economy, uh, I want to say, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, after they had a major banking crash. They literally just said, we are going to use the American dollar as our currency. With a flood of dollars coming from South Florida, now there's no cap, with the ability to do business, is it possible, do you think that Cuba will dollarize the economy and literally just you know make the dollar the currency of exchange if it isn't really already in many cases? Um, it, it really is not. And uh, granted, you know, I go down there sure. any, anywhere from a week to two weeks uh, every month um, advising, you know, companies, nonprofit organizations, and individuals uh, and, and on things related to Cuba, not only doing business, the economy, the legal system, all of the studies. I'll be down there next month on a long seminar uh, at the Supreme Court down there. One of the things that is um, really, I think, something that can't get lost in the uh, translation of all this is that the changes that are going on in Cuba are not motivated by anything related to the United States. Cuba will make it or not without the United States. It's just harder with the blockade. Cuba is a very nationalistic country. They're very proud of who they are and of their heritage. That's not going to change. If you look at the new laws that have come into effect in the last three or four years regarding business in Cuba, they specifically say that they are not changing their socialist system, that everything that's being done down there is to advance socialism in a more efficient way that benefits people. They have another issue regarding currency, which is that there's a dual currency in Cuba. There's the peso, which is equivalent to 24, well, 24 pesos is equivalent to a convertible currency they have called the coup, the CUP. And that say, say that again. It was tough to understand. Huh? What's the convertible currency called? It's called a, a coup, a CUP. A CUP, a coup. And, and you hear a coup, CUP, which is the peso. So people who are not involved in, in trade, you know, ordinary Cubans, they deal with the coup. Um, and they get paid in that. And then in order to dollarize something, it has to then be converted into a coup, and then from a coup, it then gets converted to a dollar or a euro or whatever. And therein lies a more complicated problem that's enough for its own show, which is the inability of, of access to the foreign currency. And that's something that the Cuba is dealing with. And I've spoken to quite a few economists, especially on my last trip there and one who was here last week, and, and that's that's something down the road, but it's not going to become a dollar economy. It's not going to become an outpost of the United States. We're not going back to my parents' Cuba or my grandfather's Cuba in 1959. They have a social structure. They have laws, just like we have here. There's 22,000 attorneys in Cuba. There's economic organizations there that train things. And it's not as if on December 17th, uh, suddenly... You know, Cuba woke up and said, oh, gee, you know, now the Americans are talking to us. What do we do now? Things were put in place years ago and it has nothing to do with the United States. The United States has to decide and the people have to decide. Is it in the United States' best interest to engage Cuba? Because economically, it's in our best interest. If we decide to do it, great. Little by little, the United States will participate. But ultimately, whatever government is um, in power here in the United States decides it's not, well, It'll be a little tougher for Cuba, but they'll get over it and move on. 
They've done it for 55 years. They've sent the message. They're not going to be coming out close to the United States. Well, let's talk about the the political climate in the United States towards Cuba, because there's two very distinct and different schools of thought. Um, I would say that your school of thought is well represented by, um, you know, many pragmatists, many people who believe that, uh, you know, there's been enough enmity and it didn't accomplish anything. Um, but presidential candidate and Florida Senator Marco Rubio continues to slam Cuba at every opportunity. Um, and he's one of the younger generation. So, well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, Grant, I think, you know, we've spoke about it. Um, you know, when I was of his age and, and actually younger, and I'm not unique uh, as in regards to some of the folks who are engaged in this even now, uh, I was involved in the other side of the equation, the things that the Marco Rubio's Remember, we were brought up, and I'm a Cuban-American, to believe that everything that happened in Cuba was wrong and we had to fight it. And I did it. I mean, I was very involved with the Cuban-American National Foundation. I was a volunteer lobbyist, so to speak. I went to the Democratic and Republican National Conventions, and I, and I helped frame some of the policy for some of the right-wing groups and actually effectuated right here in Congress. I, I mean, this is, issue, this is an issue. This is an issue that— was revised. So, Listen, this is an issue that my, just three years ago, three years ago, the, the Marlins manager made remarks about Cuba and he stepped on the third rail. And here we are just three years later. It's not it's not that thing anymore, is it? Well, the reason that that became what it was is because, remember, he was Venezuelan. So that not only, um, you know, for lack of a better word, pissed off people in, in Miami or Cuban, but also Venezuelans who are going through their, their own problems and their, and their own issues. And it also ultimately came down to you had a team that wasn't doing too well, and here he is talking politics instead of focusing you know, on running a baseball team. So he was meddling in things he had no idea what he was talking about, and it was believed that he was doing it on behalf of the Chavez government. So that, he, he did as it may. I think your point is, why now um, is there somewhat of a green light? And the reason is because if, if like me, you go, you go down to Cuba often, and I didn't just, you know, wake up one day and say, gee, you know what, it sounds like uh, it's a good idea, let me see. Like I told you, I've been involved in Cuba issues before. And I went down there on my first trip to see, okay, I've heard things are a certain way, so let me go figure out what they are. So what I found down there is a country trying to change. The embargo is a huge hindrance um, in, in the ability of how it can change and how the quickness of it can but, you know, it's happening. Um, there are only 70 to 100 political prisoners in Cuba. And I really don't want to talk politics, but that's always something that people talk about. Um, you know, we do know that the government there does not necessarily uh, act in a way that everybody's happy with. Well, I'm not, we're not happy with our government certainly here. So what we have to focus on is not what Cuba is doing or not doing, I believe. We have to focus, is it in the best interest of the United States? To engage Cuba. We're not going to go in and change Cuba and make it an American outpost. That's well, something that uh, when but, I but I wouldn't say that Ecuador is an American outpost. I, I would not say that Ecuador is an American outpost, but the dollarization of their economy happened because they wanted to base their currency on the dollar. Yeah, and, but they didn't have a dual currency. So Cuba has a couple of impediments to take care of, and they will. And, um, you know, hopefully one day you'll have an opportunity to do 
economists that I've dealt with. And oh, yeah. These are very, some very, very sophisticated folks. And, you know, they know what's wrong, what went wrong and what needs to get done. And, and that's one of the interesting things. Because we do speak to people, both in the government and in the think tanks, because they have them, whether at the University of Havana or in the state. You know, they'll tell you exactly what went wrong or what they should have done differently. And they're, they're trying desperately to do that. So now you have a country, the United States, that's somewhere between 90 and 150 miles away, if you want to include Miami as, as the center of that, and also Tampa, that has the ability to move fast forward um, into helping the people of Cuba, not the government of Cuba. And that's what the emphasis needs to be also on what OFAC is doing. For the most part, with, with, with little exception, everything that o- uh, President Obama is doing has to do with his motivation to directly help the Cuban people. Big example, he took the remittances from $500 to $2,000. And I got to tell you, in my last four trips there, I saw a difference. There are car washes opening, private businesses often opening all over the place. Now that number is absolutely unrestricted. So if you do go down there with dollars, you got you get clipped because there's a penalty from converting the dollars into the coop, and then there's a service fee. But that being said, there's now the ability to hand money to people directly, and and they are very entrepreneurial. Cubans are very entrepreneurial. Then there is a subset of Cubans, you know, have been traumatized by the uh, embargo and and by a period in the late and early nineties. Soviet Union fell, and, and quite frankly, I don't know if those people ever psychologically will, will recover. But for for young Cubans and for Cubans who are entrepreneurial, the opportunities are starting to open. So what do we do? We make believe that unless things go back to 1959, like respectfully our esteemed Senator uh, Rubio and people like that insist on, knowing that it's never going to happen, or do we come up with something that says, you know what? Enough's enough. These are Cuban brothers and Cuban sisters. Um, it's time to uh, approach them directly and see that uh, effectuate change that's consistent with whatever they want to do. Grant, I don't know if you know, but probably 90% of Cubans who live in Cuba were born after 1959. What, what percentage is that? Is their way of life. What, what percentage is that? It's over 90, probably 95% at this point. I would imagine that over ninety percent of Cubans in Miami were were born after at least nineteen fifty. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that would that would make sixty five. So, I mean, maybe there's a few more viejos here in Miami than than there. Well, there's eleven million people there, so I have the numbers somewhere because I have the workforce numbers. I just don't have them in front of me. So, Cuba it has you know, especially since. Um, uh, Raul Castro became uh, the head of the government, has focused more on, um, you know, dealing with the economy than his brother did as, as his predecessor. And he's quite efficient at things in some ways that he does it. Um, but, you know, it's a country that folks are not used to managing things, even in government. So, you know, there's, like, there's a huge learning curve. Absolutely, but, there is, and here too about what to do, about what's going on there. Yeah, but you know, and and I look, I don't criticize anybody who takes a position that's strong against Cuba. Everybody has their frame of reference, but you know, for folks to do it blindly, um, just because it's a political agenda or somebody's political agenda, 
that's where the problem is. They're not doing a service uh, to their constituents or, or, or to folks here in, in, in the United States or Cuba. These new regulations that I'm talking about, are some of them are, are, are profound. Um, some of them will require, and, and most of them do, for the Cuban government to approve what the U.S. government is now allowing. But for instance, right now, you know, on Thursday, I had gotten a phone call uh, from some folks who wanted to do a fishing tournament in Cuba, which would have required every boat to get a license from the Department of Commerce. And before I had a chance to even really look at it, the regs came out, and that's no longer necessary. Without any license, they can go down there as long as on the Cuban side, they are permitted to do so. And they can, that boat can stay there for up to 14 days. Um, I have an application in for one of the ferries, and it seems to me that that's going to include the ferries. But yet, on the Cuban side, that has to be done. Aircraft, it, you know, can go down there for seven days. Cubans can now open bank accounts in the United States and not have to close them when they leave after a visit. Americans can now go down to Cuba and open up bank accounts. There's a lot of stuff going on. That is a lot of stuff. And how is this um, affecting Key West? Is is Key West going to become the epicenter of the this new detente, or is it really still going to be Miami, even though Key West is so much closer? Well, you know, when you say detente, um, don't rule out Tampa. Um, because of, I don't want to use the word hostility, but the impracticality of having a, um, a Cuban consulate, remember the embassy launching that Having a Cuban consulate in Miami, I believe that the Cuban consulate will most probably be in Tampa, um, especially since some of the congressmen, and especially a particular congresswoman in Tampa, has um, you know, helped with the process. So well, I think people I, I don't, don't realize that Tampa has such Miami, a strong— from a political point of view, is going to become any kind of an epicenter. Um, you know, the mayor of Bay County says that he will protect any, any consular office in Miami, which uh, Mayor Regalado has said otherwise. And, and I just don't think it's necessary for it to be here. To be no, um, but you know, Key uh, West would be kind of cool if it was if it was there. I just don't know if they have the infrastructure. Well, people don't realize that Tampa has a thriving and and longstanding Cuban community. Yeah, and, and it predates that in Miami by at least seventy eight years. That's right. I was actually just at the Columbia restaurant not too long ago, which is so, which is so very you know now these new regulations. And it, and it permits uh, Cuba to the extent that it wants to, you know, to modernize um, air traffic, um, you know, by security systems, craft parts and things like that. Um, it permits um, individuals who want to open up in the construction trade, the telecommunication trade, um, to actually have an office in Cuba, and to have warehouses and offices. And that's it. And, 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 and in addition to that, Whereas before, you could only either sell or donate equipment to, to private businesses in Cuba. Now, it's permitted to take them there temporarily, basically, if you wanted to do a job. Again, this is all directly non-government agencies, with the exception, and we'll get a lot more clarity on it tomorrow at the seminar, um, for certain Cuban entities, okay, that individuals will be able to do joint ventures. But, so, like Saul, I've got, got to spec the regs and, and we'll get a little bit more traction on that tomorrow. Well, Saul, thank you very much for calling into the program tonight. Saul Simler, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can find out more about what Saul is doing at legallydoingbusinessincuba.com. Saul, thanks for coming on the program tonight. Legally, 
www.legallyhealingsystemsinfluence.com. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. I'll be there with my hands held high in the air. 